Welcome back to Stairway to Sevens on what would have been the Langford Sevens leg, disappointingly cancelled, but here we are. And as usual, I'm joined by James Irwin. How you doing? Good, good. And I keep, sorry mate, but Jovi rocked up about five <laughs> minutes before you did. So Jovi Ong's in the studio with us. How you doing, Jovi? The doctor. Oh, I'm good, thanks. Thanks, Professor Irwin. <laughs> Uh, as usual, we have to thank The Cover, thecover.com.au. Plenty of good stuff going up on there. I copped a bit of shit uh, about my article uh, relating to Phil Kearns. So some people were a little bit upset that I accused him of not providing any real solutions to rug- rugby's challenges. So to them, I wrote another article presenting some solutions to their challenges. So read that. Michael Motter's doing some good stuff still. Uh, I'm not sure what list he's putting up this week, but last week he put up a list about some movies you may not have seen. It's a lot of Jeffrey Rush stuff, a lot of independent stuff. I haven't watched any of them personally, but he's an expert. So if he says it's good, it's good. Uh, I watched The American Pie last night as as was on his list, one, yeah. of, one of his lists. That was watching on, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was a good one. Yeah. Uh so we're here today. We're gonna we we're gonna save this uh, for the Olympics, but given we have been starved of sevens now for a number of months, and the Olympics has been moved, where we've rewatched Australia's uh, journey at the Olympics, but more specifically the final. So we'll start with some some fun tidbits. So if I told you guys that. Australia and New Zealand had played each other between 2012 and 2016, so before they met in the uh, gold medal match. They played each other 11 times. Jimbo, how many times do you think New Zealand prevailed and how many times do you think Australia prevailed in that span? 8-3 to New Zealand. Jovi? I'd say probably about 9-2 to New Zealand. You both... Real wrong. Australia, six. New Zealand, five. Yeah, right. Of those 11 games, seven of them happened in finals. So, five series finals. What do you think the split is there? Four, three. <laughs> to who? Australia. Jovi? Say five, one to Australia. It's uh, four, three to New Zealand. So... The reason I bring this up is because it, if you go back and you even listen to the commentators, you read everything that was being put out at the time, Australia was tipped as the underdog. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. Even I, though they were first in the World Series. Yeah, so they, yeah, and I guess that's the other thing. They they'd won the World Series that year and they'd also over the over the two year span, so the 2014-15 and 2015-16 seasons had accumulated enough points to be the number one seed at the Olympics. Yeah. But but New Zealand had been the World Series champs the three years prior. Yeah. To that, yes. So New Zealand's road, uh, 12 to, to 16, was three 
series wins and one runner-up in 2015-16. Australia's was a fifth, a second, a third, and then uh, the win in that order in into 2016. So, if you think of, but if you think of it as, you know, it's something we've spoken about a lot as an as an Olympic cycle. That's kind of that's how you build. That's how you build towards success. So you can see they probably in that second year where they finished runner up, probably performed maybe a bit better than they thought they were going to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. in that third year, I remember they made a couple more changes. They brought in some other athletes. So athletes like Rachel Crothers, um, Cassie Staples. Um, so, so a few of those other sort of sports, yeah, sports transfer athletes. I think Chloe Dalton came in around that time as well. From basketball? Is that from, right? Yeah. 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 From the Flames. Yeah. Yeah. Sydney Uni Flames. Yeah. The UC Caps. <laughs> Actually, the Sydney Uni, yeah, it's another story, but the Sydney Uni Flames are now not the Sydney Uni Flames. They've just been bought by the Kings. Yeah. Anyway. Sacramento. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Sydney, Sacramento, same. Same, same. Uh, yeah, so they, then they take a dip, but then they really seem to be really happy with that group they had. And I, and if, I don't know if you remember, but um, the Australian team that year only used 14 or 15 girls across the World Series and then basically took, you know, the what they thought was the, was their best 12 to the Olympics. And, he, you know, they didn't really deviate from that. And you could see that with their results because they had a red-hot start. I think they won the first three legs. Then they had a second place and a third place in the last two legs leading into the Olympics. Um, so how does that make you feel? Smarter. <laughs> no, but I, I sort of remember while she talking about it, our first year, Aon, and about how he, how he sort of prepped the squad leading into Tokyo. And a lot of it was about those early years in the cycle, so years one or two of the four-year cycle, that it was really about trying to bleed as many girls as he could on the World Series and then gradually get his weight down to the, the 12 to 14 that he wanted. So, you know, at the time, a lot of people were saying, well, it's not going to work because you don't have the depth in the squad that New Zealand has. And, you know, what if you get an injury to one of your key players, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, obviously what the girls were doing with in the SNC space with 20 minutes and all that stuff, they managed to, to manage them throughout. And his theory of having his 12 girls or 12 athletes perform at the Olympics obviously paid off. Yeah, and look, I think with anything like that, you know, there's an element of luck. I don't really remember them having significant, significant injuries. You know, they had niggles. Mm. You know, Elia was managing a, a hamstring, you know, that that sort of stuff. But I, don't, I can't really remember them ever having a big, you know, oh, she's out for the season injury in the lead-up. Yeah. So, that, you know, there's obviously an element of luck. Jovi, do you think it's fair to say New Zealand probably at that time had better football players, but Australia had better athletes? I would say that, like, knowing what 20 men, you know, the amount of volume and conditioning that 20 men had put in, put the Australian squad through... And watching what they were doing as well, um, I obviously didn't get the opportunity to watch what New Zealand were doing. But like watching the game, you could see that through, you know, the final minutes um, of that second half, especially um, that the girls were struggling, um, but Australia prevailed in terms of being fitter, better, stronger athletes. Um, not so much, you know, skill wise, because you know, footy wise, it was a pretty scrappy game in the second half. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the, the one the one skill area we seemed to dominate was 
catch pass. Yeah. They're yep. really good at moving the ball around. But, you know, that one-on-one play, Kiwis had us pretty much every time yep. on that one-on-one footballer. Yeah. Yeah. The, the other interesting thing is this is the last time we saw the 10-minute halves in the yeah. final. So that's that was, a you know, I guess a legacy thing, old school, um, you know, probably back starting with the with the Hong Kong sevens, where yeah. that final was a longer game. From your perspective, Jovi, like that, that's got to put the athletes at risk. Given you're you're effectively adding a third half. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I mean, if you think about it, like the way they actually go through, if they were playing the series, and you know that team actually made, um, you know that finals every time they effectively play an extra half every series and chronically they're building up that load, especially mm. going into, you know, the Olympics. If they, you know, go into the finals again or they, you know, make make it to that level uh, or that stage, you know, it's an extra half, like you said, that they have to play. So depending on whether or not the athletes are conditioned to be able to play that extra six minutes um, is whether or not, you know, as we can see, Australia obviously had the backing chronic loading wise um, to be able to be fit enough. Um, fortunate enough to have like girls like Kazlik and other cross code girls like Dalton as well that have had, you know, previous exposure to long um, games and minutes in their previous sports. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd say that's a, that's a big part playing 10 minutes in the finals mm. um, as opposed to playing seven minutes which yeah. is what we're at now. It's an, it's an interesting point you make because if you look, you, you, know, we, you mentioned that New Zealand had better rugby players and, and that was largely because the, the, the system for women in New Zealand was better. Not necessarily in the seven space though. A lot of these girls came out of the 15-a-side game. Yes, the sevens program was centralised, but at this time, most of the rugby they were getting was at the, provi- at the provincial level with their 15-a-side province but if you look at the australian team so you had you had charlotte caslick and emily cherry and and uh so uh alicia lucas now um who'd come out of the touch system so they were used to leading into this they were already used to playing bulk minutes bulk games over a week over over three or four days you also had uh, a chloe dalton who was a wmbl athlete a basketball athlete yeah but when you come through the school system or the state system, basically all your rep tournaments are tournament styles. So you play, you know, you might play Sunday, Monday, Tuesday off, play again Wednesday, play yeah. again Friday. And those games, once you get to a senior level, they're, um, they're for women, it's it's 10-minute quarters, so four 10-minute quarters. They're not fully timed. The last two minutes of those quarters are fully timed. But those games go for a- anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half. Yep. And you're doing that three or four times a week. So it's, it's an interesting point you make that we we probably had, we probably were the benefit of some athletes from other sports who were conditioned, yep. who were conditioned to play big minutes over a, over a small amount of time. Yeah. But you see that from a skills background as well. Like having New Zealand being the fifth, you know, 15s focused in the women's space, their contact area and their ball carries – Super, super dominant. But then on the other side of Australia with their touch background and yep. various other athletic background, our catch pass is really good. Mm. And then our overall athleticism is really good. Mm. Yeah. yeah. All right. So if you have a look at 
uh, Australia's pool. So Australia were lucky that they ha- they were the number one seed. So in their pool, they had uh, Fiji, USA, Colombia. So uh, their first game against Colombia was a really close game, 53-0. Yeah, 53-0. <laughs> uh, Shani with the first-minute try. Yeah. Good Shani. Yeah. yeah, friend of the show. Then uh, Fiji, so they... They handled Fiji pretty comfortably, 36-0 in their second game. And then they faced a desperate USA side in the in the third game uh, and drew with them 12-all. Mm. So this, for me, this presents a, presents a really interesting what-if and a huge missed opportunity for the US. Yep. Yeah. So if you look at the US's um, journey... They drop their first game to Fiji 12-7. Then they do a you know a similar job to Colombia. They 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 beat them 48-0. And then they draw with Australia. So that that put them into you know a fight for the best third third place finisher. because um, eight teams qualified for the knockout stages. Yeah. So that meant they then had to play New Zealand. And they performed really well against New Zealand, only going down five nil. If you play this tournament 50 times, I think 48 of them, the USA beats Fiji and then ends up playing uh, a Great Britain side who to that point uh, had only conceded three points. So they hadn't, their their toughest game was against Canada, uh, which was a, I think it was a 22-3 win. So, you know... If I was yeah, if I was in that USA side, I, I would have been ruining that tournament because you know they made they made it so hard for themselves yeah. when there was a real opportunity to to win a medal there. And you, you look at their game against Australia; they they were twelve five up with you know two minutes to go, yeah. and then Tono Gatto scores in the last minute, and we convert to draw it. Yeah. So you know that they obviously they're playing they were playing some really good football, and you know one missed opportunity and it sort of. That Fiji game sort of changed their whole outlook. Mm. It, yeah, it's it's just a really interesting what if, and it, and then there's a you know there's there's also a world where they beat you know they beat Australia and Fiji, and that means Australia has to play um, Great Britain or New Zealand in the in the quarters. So it's you know it's a it's a <laughs> cutthroat sport. Yeah, I mean, but that's why people love it. You know, it's it's not just the top two teams that. You know, are always out there. We see it now in the World Series. There are what eight teams now competing for the yeah. number one spot week in week out, and that's why we get the the buy in. Mm. Well, and I think you know, Abby Gostadis made this point a while back that this format, where we have the top two, and then two third place finishers qualifying, rather than the top, the top one plus another team qualifying, is a makes for a much more exciting tournament. Yes, it adds an, an extra leg of of the final series, but you know, it's it's uh, it provides more opportunity for for some of these you know middle tier teams to play the best teams, and and from a fan's perspective, there's an opportunity for an upset. Yeah, yeah, we didn't see it in this tournament, but we have seen it. Yeah, um, and I think if you ask the Spanish girls, you know that that would probably be one of the highlights of their careers so far is is making that. That quarterfinal appearance against against Australia. Yeah. All right, so let's have a look. Let's actually 
delve into the game a little bit. Uh, the 10-minute halves thing, it, 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 uh, you, you, can see, you can see how tired they are from the start, uh, from the um, start of the second half. Yeah. Especially, I'll read, I'll actually, I'll shelve that point for a sec. I'll read out the team. So, going into this game, Australia, uh, plenty of familiar names. So, Parry, Williams, Nicole Beck, Gemma Etheridge, Emma Tonegato, Vani Polite, Charlotte Caslick, Chloe Dalton, Amy Turner, Alicia Lucas, Emily Cherry, and Elia Green. And for New Zealand, again, plenty of familiar names. Ruby Tui, Shakira Baker, Tarini Tamaka, Niall Williams, Sarah Goss, Gail Broughton, Tyler Nathan Wong, Kelly Brazier, Hiriana Manuel, Teresa Fitzpatrick, Portia Woodman, and Kayla McAllister. Thoughts on those two teams? Yeah, some pretty pretty handy lineups. And it's sort of exciting to see most of those girls are still at the top of their game now. You know, we see a young Varney and young Niall Williams is sort of in this final horn now, you know, probably the two best players for their respective squads mm. on the circuit now leading into Tokyo. So, um, yeah, on on paper, pretty pretty hard to pick a team. They're both pretty handy. Other The other uh, fun fact, interesting fact, both Adidas teams. <laughs> two times Adidas kits. Two times Adidas. Good marketing from Adidas. <laughs> I'm a big fan. Uh, you know, the uh, the current Olympic apparel provider, I believe you can buy most of their stuff in, in your local Kmart or Target. Mm. <laughs> mm. Um, and look, there's a lot to be said for partnering with a premium brand. You know, yeah. uh, certainly if your goal is to sell kit, then a Nike tick or, or an Adidas logo on that is is certainly uh is certainly beneficial. If you're Jimbo, it's a New Balance N. It's only New Balance. <laughs> Under Armour, actually. No, <laughs> no, only New Balance. Balance. <laughs> um, new Balance. But, or but die. you look at New Zealand rugby and their partnership with Adidas now. You know they bought in early on and put in a lot of the groundwork, and now Adidas is synonymous with with the All Blacks and, and Silver Ferns, and you know you you can't really see them going a different way. So. Anything rugby, all their super rugby. Yeah, Adidas. Yeah, all their players. Where you know the marketing Adidas gets out of New Zealand rugby is phenomenal. Well, and you you know the the uh, appeal to the public too. Like how many how many people did you see running around in all black Adidas boots when they you know when they had the whole team wear the all black boots and then release it to the public? Yeah, so many. <laughs> Have any of you got a pair of Deodoras? <laughs> uh, probably when I was 10, yeah. Don't get sued. Shop mum. <laughs> there's, there's plenty of other providers also out there. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, you know, the game, my biggest takeaway from this is the game has come a long way. Yeah. You know, the, the skill level has improved exponentially. Particularly from from the Australian side, we didn't actually get to see the New Zealanders uh, execute much skill because they didn't have much of the ball. Yeah. But you know, even even um, if you look at someone like Shani Williams, you know, even her her body composition, speed, acceleration, power through contact, all of that, especially you know, power through contact, yeah, in the last year or two, 
Yeah. You know, all of that has come come a long way. And, and you know, four years is not a massive amount of time. But you, you've basically seen across the board that every athlete's diversified their skill set. So yeah. we had, you know, girls who were really good catch passes. We had, yeah, Elias and Yutonagatos to finish. And we had all our strong girls in the middle. And then now you look at them on the World Series and Shani's probably one of the best passers on mm. the circuit at the moment. And then you look at even Parry, she's, She's got a lot quicker as well. Yeah. And then girls like Kazlik and Tonegato are a lot more comfortable in contact. Yeah. Yeah. So, Jovi, put yourself uh, in the position here. You've played – you've just played your semifinal at um, 2.30. Yeah. And you know that you're going into a game with 10-minute halves at 7 p.m. against New Zealand. <laughs> what are the things – how are you preparing the girls? Uh, the biggest thing would be making sure that they actually uh, recover well. Yeah. Flush all the lactic that they had, you know, accumulated from that semifinal game. Yep. Um, ensuring that they have enough nutrition as well. How many beers are they drinking? Oh, um, maybe bulk amounts. <laughs> all the carbs, you know. <laughs> none. Absolutely none. Yeah. Um, but ensuring that they dial in, you know, it, it comes down to the most intricate sort of piece in the puzzle for each of these individual athletes, what works best for you um, to help you recover and give you the best opportunity, not just physically recovering, um, but mentally recovering as well, knowing that you've done everything you can to be able to go into a game that you have to now play effectively an extra six minutes um, in the biggest sort of event of potentially your life, because it is an Olympic gold medal final. Um, You know, you're either winning a gold or a silver medal and you either, you know, become Australia where you create this huge um, backing behind women's rugby mm. from that one event um, to imagine if they won second, what would happen to female rugby? We probably wouldn't see Aeons be as popular as it is now. Well, yeah, and, you know, that's that's the, I guess, the, the important um, flow on from this is that interest in women's sport generally spiked after this Olympics. Um, yep. You know, and, and that, that that was largely to do with other sports as well. You know, you had you had basketball and swimming and, you know, other sports who, who sort of performed relatively well and, and on a big stage. But then, you know, for, for women's rugby, what, what eventuated was that you had a group of uh, you know, eight universities who said we're all willing to to drop in. You know, I can only speak to to the UC program, but you know, eighty to one hundred thousand dollars, you know, into this sport and in, yep. into a competition, which then allowed the you know the money that was being spread across sevens and fifteens to go all all the way across the fifteen. So all of a sudden, in the, in the women's space, you had you now had resourcing and funding. Two really high level competitions, um, and we so saw three years ago that Super W was born. But prior to that, you know, the women's only played like a weekend tournament. Yeah, yeah. Um, for fifteens, that is, and then yeah. they get selected to go play their Wallaroos Test match. And it, and it was the same with sevens up until twenty seventeen, and uh, and they still ran that national sevens tournament in twenty seventeen. But yeah. up until then, the only mechanism really to get picked for the Australian team was to go and represent your state at that nationals tournament. Yep. And it was played the same way as an Aeon series is played over, over two days. Yep. And if you didn't perform, 
you you went out the back door, you were probably never seen again. Yep. Yeah, Tazzy. <laughs> <laughs> and if you did, you know, you were plucked out of obscurity and straight into a into a, a what was at that point a centralized program. Uh, and you know, I, I can promise you, it, it it would have taken much longer to to adapt to that than it than it does now because yeah. of the the infrastructure around the game. So that's. You know that's that's an important point that definitely shouldn't be lost in all of this is and and also what if you know what happens if we finish second does does women's rugby you know progress as quickly as it did or you know are we still playing the one the one weekend tournament you know yeah I'm glad I'm glad we're not playing the one weekend tournament no. but it's certainly an interesting it's an interesting thought so if we let, let's let's actually just get into the game there's a there's a couple of things in this game. Uh, you know, the first four or five minutes were pretty seesawry. Um, if anything, you know, New Zealand probably had the dominance, and then we see we see them score that try. Yep. Uh, <laughs> talk me through Tonegato's try, Jimbo. It was dubious. <laughs> it was dubious. Dubious put down, but you know, referee made the decision and. I mean, live when you're making that call, like very, like very hard to tell. Yeah, you you can't really, you know, it's only one angle on slow mo that it looks like a, a definite knock on, but from f- where the referees, the goal line referees position front on at high at full speed, like there's no way you could not call it a try. Yeah, and, and certainly live, there's you know there's there was no reason you couldn't. Yeah didn't have video referee at the, at the time so I, I remember throwing my orange juice in celebration that, that morning I <laughs> definitely thought it was a try live yeah. you give it the benefit of the doubt yeah mate yeah. I was yeah I was in it was only till what last night when I rewatched it super slow mo that I went nah that was a that was a knock on <laughs> but too late we won ha, yeah ha, having having said all that if you go by the letter of the law with my lawyer hat on you don't you don't need control of the ball you just need downward pressure before you lose control of the ball. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, I'm I'm skeptical there was, there was some separation. <laughs> the NRL bunker would have found it, but, <laughs> but did it hit the ground before she before it left her fingertips? Part part of me says yes. Part of me says no. Yeah. Yep. And it, you know, in the in the grand scheme, it it probably was an important an important call. Because that ended up being the difference, yeah, in the score. Um, I, the, the reality was, I think we recorded there was fourteen or fifteen decisions that went a different way than what we <laughs> we would like. They went both ways, yeah. So yeah, yeah. To, yeah. to put it down to, to one decision, yeah, is a bit hard. I think one of the big, the key turning points in this game is Portia Woodman's yellow card. Yeah. yeah. So you know you can see her straight away. She puts her hand out and hits the ball and rips it back in and then just drops her head because she knew she knew she was going to the bin for two. Yeah. And there was seven seconds to halftime as well. And yep. you know, you had a fresh Ilya Green and a fresh Polito on and they scored a try. Yep. Or Polito did. But yep. like looking at her mindset of, of why she re- you know, she hadn't really t- I think she had one carry pre that touch, you know, and we we always hear coaches talk to wingers about, you know, getting involved in the game, you know, and so we sort of talk about players about defensively, that's where you can really be involved in the game on the edge, you know. Um, and so she's there trying to, in a gold medal match, trying to turn the game. And she's the X factor, you know, she's the leading point scorer in the tournament. 
she's used to being the dominant force. She's there. Ellie's um, sorry, Ellie's outsider. Yep. She turns in, tries, makes a decision to try and turn the game around. Ends up costing her team. But yeah, you know, you it would be very hard not to bite in that situation. Yeah. And look, so, sometimes, sometimes giving away that penalty, even though you get a yellow card, is is the right thing to do. So I, I can mm. remember playing in a uh, a semi final. In, uh, for the University of Otago, shouts to the bookworms, if there's any of you listening, <laughs> where, uh, <laughs> yeah, this is bad. So uh, the the opposition team had had numbers on the short side and I got up, got up on the wrong side of the ruck and the ball went out to sort of a, a first receiver in that sort of forward carry spot and I tackled him from behind, knowing that I was going to give up a penalty and knowing that I was probably going to go to the bin, but it stopped the momentum they took a kick, took the three points instead of seven or, or, or given five, and we ended up winning by three. So it, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it, it's the right thing to do. But, you know, in Big these sacrifices. <laughs> but yeah, I, mean, I actually think it might have been dumb on my behalf. <laughs> just, just stop it, see what happens. Let yeah. it rest. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not you know, that, that's definitely the, the rhetoric I spit now. Yeah, I'm into do that, but. I think I at the just time fell, I, just, I fell yeah. over trying to get back so quick. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you look, she she saved a definite five points. Yeah. Yes, a yellow card ended up costing twelve. But that that try Australia scores right before half time. You know, watching it like like we only got we were in, Alicia drifting across field, got in a pretty bad position, and then because of a quality pass, managed to solve the problem and and hit yeah. a young Varney in space who who scores. Like we we were the two tries that we did score were. Not lucky, but they weren't. You know, they weren't from outstanding play. So she she made a decision to save a try. Yeah, not knowing she'd she'd cost yeah. two. Yeah, and it, you know, if you if you look at that try again, just before half time, the two edge defenders for New Zealand bite in. Yeah, yeah, and then you know, uh, Lucas hits him with a double. Yeah, double dummy, double pump, double pump. just <laughs> flopping. <laughs> oh. But you know, Lucas at the time, you know, was revered for that that ability to throw the long ball, and that's all she did. She floated a long ball yep. over the top of those two defenders to to a Polito that was unmarked. That's a Steve Kerr hanging out in the corner waiting for Jordan to pass him the ball and, and score. <laughs> that was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, then they go into, they go into halftime, um, and it's 10-5, and then they come out of halftime, and they score really quickly again. Um, and, you know, we talk all the time about those, you know, I know the... The Woodman, um, the Woodman card helped, but those two minutes either side of halftime, you could probably stretch it out to three in a ten-minute game. Um, well, props to Australia for holding on the ball for that long as well, because yeah. Woodman's, you know, um, yellow card had ended. Yeah, and had the ball gone out, had a penalty been given away, like Woodman would be back on, and then another what if, like yeah, so they would not have scored that seven points. That's a really interesting point because. Woodman gets back onto the field with about six minutes forty left to play. Yeah. So in total, what was what what was supposed to be a two, two. minute um, was almost four. With, yeah. With a with a woman down. Yeah. And uh, you know, Elliot Green showing those wheels. Yeah. And I I remember again going back to first year and when we were talking to Walsh about it, and one of his big rhetorics was around holding possession. We can you know he. His equation around holding possession for X amount of phases means we score. So that would have been his half-time chat. Like, let's get the footy, let's hold on to it. 
And you could see they're just drifting across the field, almost touch style. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, really tiring the six defenders out. And then as soon as that, that there was that opportunity, bang. And, it, you know, one of the one of the big things in this game is, is you know, New Zealand were re- still really aggressive at the breakdown. And we know that, you know, having watched them now for almost 10 years, that that's always been something they're really good at. But Australia handled them. Yeah. You know, the... There were, there were periods, in the, especially in the second half, where Australia held onto the ball for six, seven, eight phases. You know, even now, you don't actually see a lot of that. You know, normally it's three or four phases. You either score or you, you, you turn it over. It was like th- yeah. 3.34 phases. Yeah. And there's either a score or a turnover. Yeah. But you be, we sort of saw it from, I think it was minute two or three. Shannon Parry sort of set the precedence dominating Ruby Tui like three or four times in the same ruck. Yeah. And ev- like from there, everyone really lifted. Mm. And, and, you know, it, it certainly looked like, especially early in the second half, Australia's tactics shifted a little bit to just take it into contact. Yeah. yeah. Take it into contact, recycle the ball, make it easy for the support player, and then, you know, then then attack what they give us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you can see that. We, we spread them to tie them out, and then when we started to get tied, really tighten it up, make it easy for ourselves, yeah. and then go back. And that that's sort of that red-black that we see so much nowadays is we either play to the edge and attack or we try and open them up through the middle or bend the line through the middle and then go back to, to hitting the edge. Mm. Yep. And then, you know, so the, the next score is then um, a Charlotte Kaslick score. And if you, if you watch <laughs> this, this is, this is textbook touch. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, no, there's no rugby player in the world who, who would have attacked a tap that way. It's yeah. really like one-on-one, I get outside you, and then all I have to do is read read the edge defender, and yeah. the edge defender didn't bite, and and she scored. Yeah, yeah. and and the the two key things she did was she ran with square hips. Yep, and then she ran with the ball in her hands. Like, yeah. yeah, her footwork was phenomenal. Her takeoff was great, but that wouldn't have if she had just bounced straight out or carried the ball in one hand. Ruby Tui bites in and shuts it down, but she she stayed square, kept Sarah Goss like Sarah on Goss, her yeah, on her right, heels. Yeah. Knowing that Charlotte could beat her back on the inside just yeah. as easy as she could on the outside, attacked her square and then just bounced out and yeah, that that touched off to score. Yeah. yeah, as soon as she squared her hips and she knew that you know Goss was actually looking at her. Her next thing was, and when we were watching this, was she was looking up at the outside defender and not even worrying about Goss because she knew that she's got her taken yeah. care of. Yeah, that that was that was for lack of a better word, eye opening. Watching, watching the replay and, the, you know, the, the production team, the camera, camera guys should be commended because they got a really good view of her eyes. Yeah. And as soon as, as soon as she takes off off that left foot, she's not even worried about what Goss is doing. She's looking directly at yep. Tui. Yeah. And, and you'd, have, you'd have to think that would be a, a video review pre-game knowing that if they can get a match-up against, against her, they, you know... Six of the seven girls would be able to beat her with footwork. Mm. Obviously, Charlotte being one of the better ones. Yeah. So as soon as she bounced out, yeah, super confident in her own ability. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, back, back end of the game, this is where you start to see a couple of girls really start to battle through the through yeah. the fatigue. Yeah. So, you know, if you look at it, um, Beck, Etheridge and Turner don't actually hit the field. Yeah. So, you know, there, there's there's – a bit of rolling subs going on, but Cherry, Dalton, and Kazlik all play 20 minutes. And there's a try 
think it's McAllister, yeah. mm. scores a try. And if you watch it again and you just watch Dalton, she makes two tackles in a row. Yeah. Is is slow to get on her feet, understandably. Yep. And then McAllister picks and goes and just gives her a nice, you know, fe- fend yeah. to the face. Yep. Um, you know, and and then if you watch him back by Dalton again, he's really slow to get up. Yeah. It's not a knock on Dalton because I actually thought she was one of the best on the ground. Yeah. But you know, back back to the earlier point, like that extra, you know, those extra minutes really really make it hard but playing a defensive game is again like as we know a lot harder and a lot more taxing as opposed to playing an offensive game yeah you know um flip the coin and put new zealand in that defensive position where australia's attacking like you probably see the same happen to half the the kiwi girls that were playing bulk minutes yeah exactly and and you especially defending for with six, uh, yeah. well, six women, yeah. you know, for four minutes. Yeah. yeah. You, look, you look at Dalton's positioning. She starts on the edge as that, you know, that ball playing uh, slightly quicker forward. And then when Varney comes on, she gets shifted back into the middle. Yeah. So when she becomes tired, she actually rotates back into the middle. Yeah. When, which yeah. is, yeah. you know, is, is a positional thing. But, you know, nowadays, like if we've got girls who are gas, we usually get them to roll out of the yeah. middle. Yeah. And get a winger to, to roll in and, and do some extra work. But... Yeah. Yeah, so to see her play 20 minutes going from the edge back into the middle where, you know, and did a lot of the dirty work. And to be, to be honest, some of her technique obviously went out the window. She got tired, <laughs> but you know, she, she she missed she missed that one tackle where McAllister scores, but she probably made another three or four. Big ones. Big yeah. ones. Opportunity stoppers. And, and you know. Yeah, and, that, and that's why I wanted to make that point. She was She was fantastic in this game. You know, whenever there was a big carry to be made, she put her hand up. Yeah. You know, she made, yeah, probably three or four tackles in cover. Mm. And when I say in cover, covering for some other girls on the team, yeah. that, you know, if she wasn't there, probably lead to points. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's an important point to make that, that she was one of the best on ground. But, yeah, you know, for just just purely because of the, the amount of Ks in her legs mm. and, and the amount of work she got through, yeah. you know, and and it highlights too that one mistake can turn a game. In this yeah. point, it didn't. But yeah, yeah, she managed to cop a pretty brutal hair pull for her troubles too, <laughs> <laughs> just for good measure. It's all the way down. And then you know, back back end of this game, New Zealand's got the ball. I think the score is 10, 10 24. Yep. And you know the game's over. Time's run out. New Zealand still got the ball. I can promise you, if I was on the field, I would have just said, "Way you go." Way you go, girls. Big, big That's why you're not on the field. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm actually done here. Yeah, game's <laughs> over. We've won, we've won. Score it. Score it. So finish this off for us. Knock it on one more scrum. Bro. One more scrum. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, to to their credit, they fought, you know, hell for leather to to not let in that last try. And then it's really just some individual brilliance there from from Woodman. Yeah. And, then, like, we, we sort of spoke about it a bit off air. Like, I, I couldn't fathom how, you know, that was Porsche's probably only actually quality touch, yep. you know, in terms of getting the ball. Yes, she spent a time off the field as we touched on, but she'd scored nine tries leading in, in the Olympics leading into the final. And to not give her early ball against Tonegato, again, this is not a knock on Tonegato, but Porsche Woodman at the time was the best player on the on the series, the strongest, the quickest, all of that. And she didn't once get a one-on-one opportunity against Tonegato. She got sort of a half opportunity against Elia when Elia first came on and yep. Elia sort of monstered her and got the turnover. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if, if I was a New Zealand coach, I'd be giving her early ball in the game 
really making it known that she's a she's a presence on that edge because then what that does is open up the middle for the rest of the girls. Yeah, exactly. You know, she's rather than just being that that X factor that has to come in the middle looking for the football like she did. You know, you use her in those first two, two, three, four minutes, have a couple of quality carries, then all of a sudden the game opens up for everyone else. Yeah. What well, and that, the the other thing I noticed with New Zealand is is they were super flat. You know, mm. normally the New Zealand teams we see they play with lots of depth, lots of you know, good all always good skills, but lots of depth and and lots of work off the ball, so inside yeah. ball switches, cuts, loops, that sort of thing. We didn't really see any of that from them, so that you know they weren't really, they weren't really active off the ball. They were tired, so they were getting flat. So they weren't giving you know their 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 danger danger women the ball with any space, with any real opportunity to do anything with it. Yeah, and probably a little bit of that is probably credit to the the Aussie girls and and the way while she had them playing is whenever we had the ball, we held onto it as yeah, best we yeah. could and we just moved it around. Yeah, and we didn't. We didn't want to attack or, you know, try and play through the middle when, when they were really tight. We really spread them, try to tie them out. So when they did get the ball, you know, they didn't have the juice to, to do what they do. And we sort of speak about it at the Aon level now, you know. So one of the big things with, with Portia on the World Series that year when Australia was successful was about attacking her yeah. repetitively, yep. like defensively. So they reckon she had at max two and a half repeat efforts in her. Yep. So if they could attack her or near her three, you know, three times in a row in in a play. Then even if there was a turnover, they knew that Porsche wasn't going to be deadly yeah, back she, the other way. Yeah, yeah. You know, so if, if you're NZ and you've got that early possession, you've got to use it because you know that Australia are going to attack her, attack her defensively. Yeah. yeah, I think the other thing this this game probably identified with with Woodman specifically is that she was well suited to to what we now know as that fast forward role. Yeah. Yeah. But you know that wasn't something we were doing. So even if you look at Australia's team, we had you know we had our ball player in in the pack with Dalton, but then we had Parry and and Williams together, sort of holding down the middle of the field as as the you know the big strong strong girls. You know now we see Tonegato getting reps in in the forwards. We see Staples getting reps in the forwards. You know Meeks has played a little bit there as well. Yeah. Ellie has packed down a couple of scrums. Yeah. So we're you know. And and if you watch this game and you watch Woodman, as you say, where she's searching for work in the middle, you know, the, I think the the coaching staff probably watched that and went, "Oh, maybe how how can we better use yeah, her? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe we can utilize her skill set and you know, really revolutionize the position." Yeah, and, and she she has single handedly changed the game for a lot of a lot of those quick girls. Like you look at the USA with girls like Nia Tapper. Yep. You know, you even look at. Some of those big Canadian girls, and even Charity Williams, who's not she's not a big girl, but she's super strong. You yep. know, she gets she gets some reps in there, and we, we see it back down on the A level as well. You know, mm. with speed being such a key part of the game, um, and that, and that effort footy, if we can get some quick, strong girls, you know, who are really athletic, playing in, in that fast forward role, we, we see a lot of dominance there. And it, it's funny, you know, ret- in retrospect, the, it, you know, looking back, this is the way we did things. We had our forwards and our backs. Yeah. You, that fifteens mentality. Yeah, and yeah. you you look at it now, and it's like, well, we're we're kind of positionless. Like sometimes you're going to have to step up in the first receiver. And as a coach, you know, you you love the idea of having, you know, two girls on either on either edge. You know, one's a forward, one's a back, notionally, that can finish for you. Yeah. yeah. Whereas with a setup like this, you're constantly trying to set it up on the left hand side or the right hand side, depending on on where that player likes to play. Yeah. 
But it, yeah, you sort of look at the the development, and we focus a lot on the Aussie girls with with the like almost that Rafa Nadal approach. Like mm. they they won gold here, they're on top of the world, and they went right. Like our skills got us here. How can we make sure all our our weaknesses or our, our non elite skills get to that level? And they really worked at getting everything to a baseline. Mm. And you know we mentioned it before, diversifying their skill set. And now you look at them, they can play. You know all different positions. Shani could easily play in the centers. Yeah. In the prop, and you know that that helps. When you've only got 12 girls on tour and, and now with things like the blue card and a lot of uh, load management, all those sorts of things, having having positional diversi- diversity within the squad is, is crucial. He's Tasmanian. Too, too many big words. <laughs> Sorry, Tom. Jovi's the doctor. <laughs> oh, you're the professor. But, you know, you, you would see it too, Jovi, you know, with the way you're, you're now approaching um, strength and conditioning. I imagine yeah. when you first came in, it was forwards do this. Backs do this. These yep. are the forward benchmarks. These are the backs benchmarks. Yep. Now there's a lot more crossover. Yeah. Well, yeah, to be honest, like when I first got involved with sevens, I still thought there were forwards and backs yeah. because that's how the coaching was done. So yep. I, I did guilty. I was guilty um, for, you know, setting up programs for forwards and backs in sevens and then later realized, well, no, they're, they need to be sevens able to do athletes. the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're sevens, and and that's why you don't see a prop from fifteens game coming around and playing sevens because, you know, they won't be like yeah they may might be powerful and strong, but they won't be able to give you what you want as no. opposed to having like a potentially a number eight or back rower come around and cross code into a sevens. Well, and you're even seeing in the fifteen side game now if you look at like the the, the say Manu Tuilangi as an example or or um the beast from from France that's, uh, where you're. Your centre, yeah, Bastero. Your your centres and your, you know, your eights and your six sixes. There, you're actually seeing them share a lot of the same skill sets, body types, yep. power to weight ratios, yep. speed, all that, all yep. that sort of stuff. And you know, the the positions aren't transferable necessarily, no. but if you look at the athletic profiles, yep. they're very similar types of athletes. Yep. Whereas you know, even ten years ago, you know, you you definitely couldn't have had uh, Todd Kefu playing outside center. No. Yeah, his top end speed wasn't there. But you know, George Smith is probably a really good example. I actually watched George Smith play for Manly um, in the centers with his brother Tyrone. Yeah, okay. So he was probably one of the early guys who shared that similar profile. But it is it is definitely interesting, and I think the GPS data that we get now is probably in the sevens games has probably played a big, a big part of that yeah. because when you look at it, you know, you'd expect your wingers to have more sprint efforts, Yep. but you expect your forwards to have more K's because they're your forwards quotation mark, because they're the ones in the middle mm-hmm. making all, making all the tackles, you know, yep. having all the big carries. So yep. it, it highlights a need, you know, to train them in very similar ways because it, you know, you look at across the board, the, the, the amount of Ks they do is very similar. Yeah. Well, I think we did it. I think we clocked the Olympics in 2016. <laughs> Four years late, but we got there. Yeah, you know. Yes. Yeah. We didn't... Uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed looking back at it. And I, as I said, the, big, the biggest takeaway for me is, is the girls' skills, you know, everything. The whole, the whole game is... Almost unrecognisable. Yeah, yeah, it's it's come a, a bloody long way, and yeah. you know, it, 
the comment that that Rick Charlesworth, who who was the women's <laughs> yeah. women's hockey coach at the time, he said, you know, oh, well, that that was a soft medal. And when I heard that, I, I remember being really offended by it. Yeah, we were in a talk. Yeah. He was running a talk with AOS. We yeah. listened to him, and we both looked at each other like, "Yeah, fuck this guy." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, look, looking looking back at the game, and and sort of understanding, you know, that the game had only been professional or semi-professional for four years, and then having another four years of of content reps and all of that. I'm not going to say he was right, but the game is is very different. For, from an on-field performance perspective, I, I get it. Yeah. But from an off-field performance and then those athletes, like, you know, no money, no resourcing, no support. Like, yeah. You know, how can you call all the hard work, all the all the shit we don't see on screen, all the stuff that, you know, we, we spoke to, um, you know, uh, Abby about, Nadine about, Jasmine about, like yep. all that stuff that happens behind the scenes. Like, how can you call any of that soft? Yes, compared to, to the, the level of professionalism and skill hockey was playing with at the time, completely understand it. And to, to be fair, you, we, we compare this Rio to Tokyo, the games will be unrecognisable. different, yeah. But, you know, at, at the time... Those athletes were basically doing everything for themselves. You know, they they were the ones that put their hand up to put in all the effort to do, do all the hard work. So yeah. yeah, when when it was called a soft metal, I was a bit like, like I, I understood what he was trying to say, but it was definitely the wrong word. Yeah, and you know the the important point there is that the program was only centralized for two years. Yeah, mm. so fourteen and fifteen were the first two years it was centralized. Yeah. Prior to that, everyone was training in their home states. Yeah. You know, some with a with a um, or most with a, a state sports academy, yep, uh, and playing. You know, having to play club fifteen aside footy, and then they would come together for a week or two prior to each each tournament. So, yeah, and and the, I guess the other point is how many medals have hockey won that have changed the dynamic of women's sport in Australia? Like really, yeah, like the, the, those twelve girls are you know will go down as history and you know pinnacle athletes in their sport that have that have changed the the way young girls in Australia. Um, you know, look at sport and, and look at life in general about what, what they can or can't achieve. It's it's one of the few sports in the world where the men are jealous of the pathway that the women yeah. have. Oh, especially in Australia. Yeah. Yeah, big time. Uh, because the men, you know, at a senior level, they don't even have a senior nationals anymore. No. Mm. So if, you, you know, if you're a male, young male athlete who want to play sevens... Yes. Got to, got to get picked in a Super Rugby squad, but be too shit to make the first team, and then you get a look at sevens. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that's pretty much how yeah. it works. And yeah. and you know that that's that that is a reality. The the pinnacle in the men's game at the moment is the fifteen aside game, and so the best rugby athletes are going to want to play fifteens. You know, and and in the women's game, you know, sevens is professional. It's an Olympic pathway. It's an opportunity to play footy for for a job, uh, for want of a better term. So you are going to have your pick of of of, of rugby athletes generally, and and the, the girls have put the the work in deserve the pathway that they've Absolutely. gotten there, you know, and and they deserve to be proud of that, and yeah, and it, it's interesting, like obviously with the, the current COVID situation, a lot of lot of talk around women's sport holistically, and you know the gender pay inequality and all of that, but but how will women's sport actually look post COVID with with lots of programs looking to to trim trim their professional programs, you know, will they trim women's programs? Will they, you know, will they cut funding from junior academies like male and female? You know, and, and rugby's in this really exciting, potentially exciting position where it can it can use the women's sevens game to, to continue to be the pinnacle 
yeah, yeah. you know, of, of women's sport in Australia. You know, and, and I read an article from, I think she's the CEO of Rowing New South Wales, you know, and they've, they've got, they, pre-COVID, they had a really great male-female equality setup, and yep. so they all come out of COVID pretty well, she was saying, in terms of equality. But for some of the, like AFLW, NRLW, Super W, yeah. like all, the, all these things that rely on revenue from the men's game to fund, you know, there's going to be some challenges there. But rugby's in this exciting space where we can potentially use sevens as the marquee pinnacle, you know, women's Olympic sport leading. Yeah, to, to reignite, you know, reignite and, interest and, in the game. You know, we're not, we're, you know, not using Tokyo to, to grow women's rugby like we did in Rio, but using Tokyo to grow, continue to grow women's sport. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you a story that uh, Carrie Graff told me. Um, while she, so while she was coaching Phoenix Mercury uh, in the WNBA, the, the Portland Trailblazers, the guys – own the Portland Trailblazers, they had a women's team as well. And one year, you know, the money was a bit tight. The, the men's team weren't performing that well. And ownership wanted to build a new changing room facility. So instead of going out and fundraising and doing that, they just cut the women's program and built a change room with the money from the women's program. Yeah. That sort of happened in, in some club sort of, you know, sport environments here in Canberra, you know, you've you've heard of stories where women's sport have been cut because yeah. men's sport are in debt or, you know, I don't need to be given a handout to get out of a rut. Well actually there was an example of a local club where um so the men's team the men's team first grade team were basically you know basically sending the club into a, a voluntary administration. Yeah. The women's program was making money. So they took the money from the women and gave it to the men. And the women got pissed off and left. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I really hope, and as you say, rugby has a real opportunity here with 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 the women being a, being a gold medal ready team, yeah. you know, a team that's going to that's gonna vie for a medal. Rugby has a real opportunity to do the right thing, support them, and reignite interest in rugby generally, not not just in the women's and, game. And the reality is, like, if we if we look specifically at rugby, like, it, it's potential to grow the audience for the men's game. You know, because we talk about it all the time, like, the men suck. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, we're, like, with all the Super Rugby, you know, we're not expecting the men to have you know the depth of the resourcing that they, they've had because they can get guys in from Super Rugby who are on big money or, or back from Japan who are on big money, etc. You know, and if we use women's sevens as, as the pinnacle for rugby at, at Tokyo, you know, there's there's real avenues for it to be the marquee. Yep. Yep. Well, on that note, on that positive note, hopefully we're going to get... Uh, we're expecting a, a, an announcement from Rugby Australia in the next couple of weeks about a return to rugby. Um, so I think we'll see some kind of domestic competition professional domestic competition return. Now, whether that is an NRC-style competition with more teams or whether it's, you know, uh, the four or five Super Rugby and, and um, with the force included in that. We, global Rapid Rugby. Global Rapid Rugby. Uh, we're not sure. Uh, and then, you know, a, a community uh, rugby sort of continue, you know, in a safe way beyond that after that. Yeah. We did have an announcement from the federal government and and via the AIS on a, I guess sort of a playbook of of return to yeah. return to play. So hopefully, everyone follows that uh, to the T. 
Yeah. And, and you, you'd have to think state by state, the return will be drastically yeah. different. Yeah, and I, you know, I think ACT is in a, is in a position now where we've got no active cases. Um, so, you know, I think we, you know, if our return to sport is July, Sydney's is probably September. Yeah, and, and obviously with Victoria overnight having, you know, what, 16 new cases or whatever it was, you know, yeah, they're, yeah. they're probably further behind again. But, yeah. Yeah. Well, Mr. Ong, thank you. The doctor. Thank you. Mr. Irwin, thank you. The professor. Uh, Jimbo, Jimbo O'Keefe. Sorry, mate. Soz. Next week. I promise. Next week. No, nah, I don't promise. Unless, na- unless Nathan gets in unless, first. Unless McMahon rocks up first. <laughs> oh, Bowie. <laughs> Jackie Bowie. Thanks again to the cover. Thanks again, Mum and Dad. Thank you to the seven other people who listened to the show. Uh, That's enough for a team, mate. Yeah, yeah we've got one team. Uh, yeah, we'll be back at some point, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. Hopefully we'll have some good news about some return to sevens. <laughs>